Uh, I'd like to make uh, make one announcement uh, again about uh, uh, what were the proceedings. We're a little bit late. You're all going to have to eat downstairs uh, in the the cafeteria uh, on the A floor. Uh, which has lots of choices and very easy um, to be to be able to be back here by two o'clock. And it's, we're starting late now, which I'm very concerned about. So just be warned, we expect a lot of students this afternoon for uh, comics, uh, which, as we said, crosses generations. You may find that there will be reserved seats for students uh, both here and the balcony, which we want to make sure we can accommodate them. Um, uh, I also... Uh, Started with this sort of a uh, thought about starting with a quip. You know, I thought finally we've arrived at the Holocaust. I bet you thought we'd never going to get here. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about the Americanization of the Holocaust for good and for bad, uh, and the obsession uh, of certainly of American Jews, uh, and uh, even now I think the American public at large not quite knowing what to do uh, with the fallout from thinking about the Holocaust. <clears throat> the most interesting thing about this panel, just as, a, um, just as a, um, an introduction, is that three of our four panelists are actually creative writers who chose, even though they're going to be reading a little bit from their work in the course of their, of their talks, but they each chose uh, independently to be on a panel discussing the Holocaust from here. Uh, that is, and I'll be introducing them to Melvin Jules Bukit and Leslie Epstein, Thane Rosenbaum, are three of the creative writers who have been adding immeasurably uh, to uh, the whole question about the relationship of Jewish-American writing uh, and the catastrophe that was the Holocaust and that um, forever transformed, I think, the consciousness of American Jews, certainly, and transformed the history, the language, uh, expectations, and, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, politics. So uh, this, I think, is an important uh, moment here. And uh, what I've chosen to do, rather than to go alphabetically, uh, was to start with Leslie Epstein. You heard something about him, and I thank Morris Dickstein for giving the spiel I might have given about uh, American Jews uh, in writing about the Holocaust. Uh, uh, because Leslie Epstein's book, The King of the Jews, published in 1979, was an absolute first, it was an absolute landmark book of an American who had not gone through the experience, uh, someone of the generation who could have gone through it, as certainly as a child, and who wrote this brilliant, extraordinary, uh, black comic farce, and I teaching here uh, a course on Holocaust in text and image, which I'm teaching at this very moment, uh, always a sign um, this book, uh, King of the Jews. I still find it as compelling and as extraordinary as when I first, it first burst upon my consciousness. Um, he is the uh, director of the creative writing program at Boston University. He's published eight books of fiction, notably The King of the Jews, 1979, which has become a classic of Holocaust literature and has never gone out of print, as well as The Gold Corn Tales in 1985, Pinto and Sons, 1990, um, Pandemonium, 1997, and Ice, Fire, Water, a live uh, gold corn cocktail in 1999. Uh, he's also very famous because his father was a twin uh, as a, um, the, uh, a screenwriter with a twin, his twin brother, the Epsteins, uh, and most famous, I think, for writing the, the script of Casablanca. Is that right? For writing the scripture. So he grew up in Hollywood, and Pandemonium has a great deal to do with that Hollywood uh, experience. Um, 
he, his articles and stories have appeared in numerous publications, and he was awarded a distinction in literature from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters for his creation of this figure, Lib- Goldcorn, and his book, Pandemonium, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in Fiction. Uh, he has a very tantalizing uh, topic, the uniqueness of the Holocaust. I have no idea what it's about, but I give you and welcome Leslie Epstein. Uh, thank you, Froma, uh, for single-handedly keeping me in print. <laughs> and it's a, uh, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, if you look on the uh, large uh, poster here, which I can't read upside down, it will say that my original topic was uh, King of the Jews uh, Revisited. And if you look at the smaller version, it does say uh, Uniqueness of the uh, Holocaust. And it means I changed my mind. Um, but for a reason, I thought that uh, to refight the battles of, uh, of 20 years was just kind of silly, finally. And um, I can assure James Atlas that 20 years from now, he will not be worrying about James Wood or the New York Times. Um, and beside, I think Alvin and I have buried the hatchet, and there's no reason to do that kind of thing. So uh, I am going to talk about the uniqueness of the, of the Holocaust. And this is really fighting a battle from only a year ago because I published a, a rather long article in Harper's about going to Auschwitz. And this is an expanded uh, version of one corner of that article that caused a bit of a ruckus. Uh, in other words, I got five letters. But to an author, that's, a <laughs> that's an avalanche. <laughs> um, including a poignant letter from a, from a gypsy. And his concerns I've tried to meet uh, in, in what I say today. Um, let's begin by talking about um, what the, uh, of why the Holocaust is not unique. Uh, here are the, uh, it's not surely a matter of numbers or scale. Um, the figures for deaths uh, at Auschwitz 1 and 2 run like this. One million Jews were killed, 73,000 Poles, 21,000 gypsies, 15,000 Russian prisoners of war, and about 10 to 15,000 others. And because the total of Jewish deaths is 10 times greater than all the rest combined, does not make their suffering unique or their fate more worthy of being remembered than any of those other victims. Nor does the fact that the Jewish people were largely, and of course their culture utterly, expunged from Europe. That does not mean that their fate is unparalleled by any means. Whole civilizations have been wiped from the face of the earth. And in terms of relative populations, uh, uh, in terms of relative populations, the calamity that befell the Jews has been surpassed by other atrocities, which in the course of history one people have inflicted upon another. Of course, the Holocaust happened in our history, our century, the one just passed, which means that the Jews were struck by the full force of everything that is modern. Mechanization, and assembly lines, mass communication, the coldness of bureaucratic organization and decorum, 
But the fact is that every age has had, all too literally, its cutting edge. And even in our own age, the weapons that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima are no less representative of contemporary technology than were the pellets of Zyklon B. It is true that the Jews were hunted down for different reasons and with different degree of thoroughness than any other people thrust into Auschwitz or any other people really, I think, at any other place or any other time. Not a single Gentile of Poland was, was found himself in Auschwitz simply because he was a Pole. Whether resistance fighter, petty criminal, intellectual, believer, or simply the object of a mistake, every victim was accorded what in the world of the concentration camps was the ultimate luxury, and that was an explanation. The Russian POWs were everywhere treated with special ferocity. And indeed, in Auschwitz, they were the ones upon whom Zyklon B was first tested. But the fact is that those instances of uh, mass murder were always the exception for Russian POWs. And the rule was that captured Soviet soldiers were shipped to POW camps and that anyone in their ranks who became identified as a Jew was shot at once. Even those others who were tortured and starved and all too often to death suffered that fate because of their, not because of their essential nature, but because they were actual enemies of the Reich and they were not the imaginary demons Hitler saw in the Jews. The hardest case, of course, is that of uh, gypsies. Their tragedy has often been linked with that of the Jews. But again, in Auschwitz, they were indulged by the commander, Hess, as what he called his favorite prisoners. They were a kind of human pet to him. And, then, and when they were killed, usually toward the end of the war, it was often in haste and as a kind of afterthought. The badge they wore, the gypsies in the camps, was that of the asocials. That included a categ the category of beggars, hobos, pimps, and prostitutes, or anyone else who violated what the Germans called the order of the folk community. Moreover, gypsies who married pure Germans were, as a rule, not subjected to de uh, deportation. And those who had abandoned altogether the nomadic life and taken up a fixed abode often ceased to be the targets of either manhunts or genealogical investigation. What this means, again, I think, is that the gypsies, for all their sufferings, suffered not for some ineradicable germ of gypsyhood in their inmost being, but for a way of life. For the Jews, and only the Jews, there could be no such rationale. In the very first thing Hitler wrote that could be called political at all, and it dates from 1919, he developed what he called, ironically enough, an anti-Semitism of reason. 
And in that work, he said that his ultimate objective was to develop a rationale uh, that would call for the, un, uh, the unshakable elimination of the Jews. He speaks in that article, 1919. He speaks there of the Jews' materialism, of their, quote, dance around the golden calf, and their, again, quote, lust for money and power. But if the Jews were portrayed by Hitler's own propaganda machine, as well as in the psyche of Western culture, as the force which controlled the world's finances from behind the scenes, they were, as we all know, no less attacked for being adherents of their blood brother, Karl Marx. This clash of irreconcilable attributes, banker and Bolshevik, capitalist and communist, underlies as much as anything I can think of the irrational nature of the response to the Jew. On the one hand, cosmopolitan and sophisticated. On the other, the provincial, the disease-carrying beggar. The Jew is incapable of responding to spiritual values, the German said, and yet they were equally guilty or no less guilty of abstracting the earthly instinct of the folk. Here, he is aloof, cliquish, foreign. There, he is assimilating. He is insinuating himself into the center of society. He is boring from within. He is the essence, in short, of everything, and he is simultaneously the essence of everything that is at one and the same time medieval and modern. This degree of incompatibility leads to not just the kind of motiveless malignity that Coleridge attributed to Iago's loathing of Othello, but to a hatred of logic itself. In Auschwitz, as in many of the other camps, those in powers took, took the deepest delight in demonstrating to the Jew that his punishment was not for any deed he had committed, but for some quality in the sap of his being. The senselessness of daily existence, the exact number of buttons that had to be sewn on one's shirt, the angle of one's cap upon one's head, the tautness of the blanket upon one's bunk, the absurdity of one's labor, the hole dug for hours that was then filled in for hours more, the pile of rocks carried all morning to the left and then in the afternoon brought back to the right. That and above all, the ubiquity of mood, whim, and the disproportion between cause and effect best symbolized in the tick of Mengele's finger. And of course, you, you know what I mean, that on the unloading dock, to the left meant death, and to the right, life. A tick of a finger, the disproportion between cause and effect. All these things combined to remind the Jew, and perhaps even more, his master, what lay at the very core of the fascist mentality, the meaninglessness of existence. When Primo Levi finally asked his tormentor, Varum, why was he being tormented? The answer, and it recalls in its force and succinctness that given by the very first of all murderers, am I my brother's keeper? 
the answer was, here is kein Verum. There is no why. Now, all of which is to say that in my view, the Holocaust is unique because the Jews are unique. And that's one of the, another reason I got these letters <laughs> for that statement. And yet it seems to me um, almost a truism that the Jews are unique among peoples and that that's why they were slaughtered. I don't want these words to be misunderstood, and I'd be devastated if they were. The life of a Pole or that of a Gypsy, a Cambodian, an Armenian, a Tutsi hacked to death by a Hutu, such a life is no less precious or worthy of being mourned than that of a Jew. But Poland, in all of its greatness, and I'm thinking not just of such figures as Copernicus, but, and I say this without bitterness and without irony, that nation's centuries of hospitality to the Jews, Poland has not played the role in European civilization that the Jews have, nor has any other nation or any other people. In part, the Jews' singularity derives from simply having lasted so long, just as in various Native American religions, an aged boulder through its sheer perseverance takes on a certain venerability and holiness. In part, too, the Jews' entanglement with Christianity has marked them off from all other peoples. I'll just take a, a brief detour now into that relationship of Judaism and Christianity. Because if Paul had remained Saul, and even then we Jews were changing our names, um, and if Constantine the Great had not hallucinated a cross in the sky, that is to say, if the religion of Jesus had remained a minor sect and not become a major heresy, the Holocaust could not have occurred. I don't wish to claim here that because, the lives of the Jew, because of the lives the Jews were forced to live, under Christendom, ostracized, segregated, libeled, the victims of crusades and inquisitions, and that final roundup in Rome beneath the nose of Pius the Mum. I do, do not mean to say that the Holocaust was nothing more than the most deadly of all pogroms. For how could the church call for the extermination of the Jews when in the least friendly of the apostles, John at 422, writes, the salvation of Christians can only come from that accursed people. They need us. From the beginning, Christians and Jews have been locked as a psychic unit in the most traumatic, the father displaced by the son and his mother, the most traumatic of family dramas, or perhaps the replacement uh, of another uh, family drama, that of Abraham and Isaac with a holy family. The import of that, that replacement, that changing of family dramas, may well have been the calling into question the prohibition upon human sacrifice and the sowing of the seeds that became the Holocaust. And that's pretty debatable. What I think is not debatable is that Judaism is, for Christians, a terrible burden. The Jews killed Christ, so the words of the priests in their Easter sermons. But that was not the basis of their grudge. It was Freud who noticed that the most virulent anti-Semites were the newest Christians, often brought to the faith under compulsion, still longing 
uh, for a nature that was animated, a God on every branch and every breeze. Turn the other cheek, unthinkable. No sex with my neighbor's wife, unnatural. Love him instead, intolerable. What's ne- what such neophytes, one may say, Freud comments, that they are badly Christianed. What such neophytes want is what their new religion forbade. And what they do not want is what that religion demanded. So, you killed Christ, echoes the Cossack, as he prepares to crush the skull of the Jew. But what he means, though he doesn't know he means it, is that you gave us Christ. Freud, one last time, the hatred for Judaism is at bottom hatred for Christianity itself. Still in all, it is not in relation to another religion so much as by their belief in their own that the Jews have so shaped the nature of Western thought. I do not know whether or not the Jews have been chosen to be a light unto the nations. I do know that the nations have behaved toward the Jews with that same animosity that darkness feels toward the light. Or that, in an image I wish were my own, flower must feel toward the yeast that will not ever let it subside. And what is that yeast so bubbling, so insistent, so difficult to tolerate, but the force of imagination? I believe that the war of the Germans against the Jews was a war against certain qualities of the Jewish imagination, and that to rephrase the famous aphorism of Heine, before the mobs in Berlin and Munich and Dresden could burn the Jews, they first had to burn their books. If civilization began when a man screamed at his enemy instead of stoning him to death, or sacrificed an animal instead of his fellow man, then the task of the Third Reich was to turn words back into rocks. That is to say, to drain them, to drain them of their imagistic, symbolic, and metaphorical properties. Thus, in the Horst Vessel song, the language of Jewish blood spurting beneath the knife was all too often followed by literal Jewish blood spilled in the streets. So, to end, why the Jews? Why Jewish blood? I think it is because of the Jews' continuous exercise of what Coleridge, once again, called the primary imagination, the, quote, repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am, unquote. It is the Jews who took the imaginative leap of comprehending out of an empty whirlwind, a burning bush, the I am that I am. It is the Jews who substituted the story of Abraham and Isaac for the reality of the father killing a son and a son killing his father. If in some measure Christianity longed for a return to the original form of sacrifice, it was for the German, it was for German paganism to make that hidden wish a fact of life. A million Jewish children slain. And it is the Jews, too, who have maintained in their finite minds a belief in the infinite. And with that belief, the supreme fiction, which is that we matter, that existence has meaning. 
that supreme fiction became a rebuke to our age's countervailing faith, which is that everything, anything is possible. And when that happened, then those finite minds and all that they held within them had to be, uniquely had to be, destroyed. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I think if you read King of the Jews, you'll be, uh, find very interesting the difference between this public speech and the uh, tone of, of King of the Jews and its incredible black humor, uh, which he has had to defend uh, ever since then. So it's very interesting to contemplate the two, two different worlds here. Um, our second speaker is Melvin Jules Bukit. Uh, he's an author and an essayist. He's multi, multiply translated and anthologized. Uh, he started with uh, a, uh, a novel, Sandman's Dust, 1986. Um, uh, just the, let me just put it more in, 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 uh, in chronological order. Uh, Stories of an Imaginary Childhood, uh, 1992, the winner of the Edward Lewis Wallant Award. Uh, and a series of books coming out very quickly, While the Messiah Tarries, 1995, a collection of stories. After uh, 1996, uh, which is really about the aftermath of the Holocaust and, a, and a, uh, a very black humor look at the DP camps and thereafter, Signs and Wonders, 1999, and a brand new book, Strange Fire, in 2001, uh, he is the editor of Neurotica, Jewish Writers on Sex, 1999. His uh, forthcoming books include Nothing Makes You Free, Writings by Descendants of Jewish Holocaust Survivors, an anthology of fiction and nonfiction for, from more than a dozen countries, A Faker's Dozen, which are stories, and Manhattan Rhapsody, an apparently endless novel narrated by Manhattan Island. Uh, he also teaches at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, and let me welcome then Melvin Jules Bouquet. Uh, hello. I do have something prepared, but I jotted down some initial notes. Uh, first, uh, thanks to the people who made this all possible, to Froma, Starry, Marcy, um, to Mr. and Mrs. Milberg, and to the university. I'm grateful. Uh, but before I begin, it occurs to me that uh, unlike that of just about any other panel or presentation over here these last few days, uh, the nature of this one, which is essentially about extreme danger and the response to it, uh, requires some acknowledgement of the world beyond the world that we're sitting in, although Morris certainly did the same. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know exactly how to do that because, um, because I'm not smart enough. I can only say that some of the same feelings that I've known vicariously over the years, which we'll come back to, have returned this month in an entirely unvicarious way. And I don't like it. Um, some of these have names. Uh, rage, fear, anxiety. Uh, also impatience at idiots who suggest getting back to normal because there's no such thing as normal. Uh, 
on the other hand, yet uh, one is who one is. One does what one does. Um, my two teenage daughters may be editing an anthology on the World Trade Center. Uh, I don't think this is merely vulgar morbidity uh, because the awful is full of awe and uh, also because uh, they are my daughters and uh, they are their grandfather's granddaughters and they are Jews and using words is how we know how who we are and how we understand the world. Okay, uh, from uh, mentioned my forthcoming anthology uh, subtitle of which is Writings by Descendants of Jewish Holocaust Survivors. Um, at some point I define every one of those words but not here. Uh, the title of the introduction and the title of the book itself um, is Nothing Makes You Free. A rock drops into the center of a pond. Ripples spread. Make that a flaming comet crashing into a boiling tar pit. A tidal wave ensues. Consider the Holocaust as that first event. Call the pit Europe. The Jews, poor schnooks, believed that Europe was a temporary residence they occupied while awaiting return to the true Holy Land. Until that day of redemption arrived, however, they lived quietly, working, studying, making sure that their chickens were kosher. Most engaged in daily worship to the God who drove them from Zion into Babylonia, Rome, Spain, medieval Middle Europa, and finally the fertile Polish countryside. Even the few city sophisticates who read and wrote for newspapers breathed exile. So occasionally a drunken peasant cudgeled a Jewish tot who died. So there were blood libels, pogroms. What did you expect? This was Eastern Europe, where, despite Marx, Rothschild and Freud, Kafka, Chagall and Schoenberg, not much had changed since the Middle Ages. Life was precarious, yet it went on as it had in ages past. How could these people dream that here, in their own time, centuries of fruitfulness and multiplication would come to nothing? A friend of my family grew up in Osvietim, a village 30 miles west of Krakow, which, due to the German tongue's inability to pronounce the Slavic syllables, came to be known as Auschwitz. He played there with the other children amidst the groves of birch trees, where a world of Jews would utter their last prayers before a bullet before a knife, before a brick, before a doctor, a butcher, a baker, before the gas. Then came D-Day, the Red Army, German surrender. Concentration camps were liberated, and approximately 100,000 Jews were released from hell. Many more emerged from years of hiding and terror. What a strange world they inhabited. Their homes were burnt, their culture destroyed, their God silent. It was a world without very young or very old people, because most of those who survived were between 20 and 30 and had been deemed fit for work, temporarily. Perhaps most bizarrely, the survivors was a world without parents, a world of orphans. Like their literal mothers, their mamaloshin Yiddish was now as dead as Sanskrit. That was appropriate because the survivors were ghosts floating across the devastated landscape. Much congratulatory celebration is made these days of their vigor, their character, their mere existence. But let's keep one truth on the table. Hitler won. The Jews lost badly. The continent is morally, culturally, essentially Judenrein. 
Thus, the survivors were expected to remain unobtrusive supernatural phenomenon, not disturbing the living with the clanking of their chains and their alarming stories. In return, a guilty world tried to salvage its conscience by granting passports to the United States and other nations to those whose entry they barred a decade earlier. For the most part, the survivors obliged. They pretended to live normal lives, to find work, pay rent, eat dinner. A few, like Elie Wiesel and Primo Levi, chronicled their individual and communal catastrophe in print, but most lived as privately abroad as they had in their destroyed homes. This was the 1950s, and the Holocaust had not yet entered the public consciousness as it would 30 years later. But the survivors could not wait to be discovered. So the tailor in Borough Park, the builder in New Jersey, the housewife in Miami, and their co-equals in Tel Aviv and Melbourne and London told their stories to each other over games of gin. They also told them to the only others who had no choice but to listen, their children. Despite every possible attempt to obliterate them from the face of the earth, these phantoms had returned to the land of the living, and that meant meeting and mating and bearing squalling infants who wouldn't have stood a chance one decade earlier. Whether they remained in Europe as 18th generation Germans or were born in the United States as first generation Americans within Holocaust circles, the children are known as the second generation. In a way, life has been even stranger, though infinitely less perilous, for the children than the parents. If a chasm opened in the lives of the first generation, they could nonetheless sigh on the far side and recall the life before. But for the second generation, there is no before. In the beginning was Auschwitz. On the most literal level, their fathers would not have met their mothers, if not for the huge dislocations that thrust the few remnants of European Jewry into contact with spouses they would never have otherwise encountered, except for DP camps or in the 20th century diaspora. The second generation's very existence is dependent on the whirlwind their parents escaped, barely escaped. No one who hasn't grown up in such a household can conceive it, while every 2G has something in common. Every one of these happy or unhappy families knows a variation of the same unhappy story. Of course, some survivors spoke incessantly of the Holocaust, while others never mentioned it. Of those who didn't speak, some were traumatized, while others hoped to protect their offspring from knowledge of the tree of evil. The second generation will never know what the first generation does in its bones, but what the second generation knows better than anyone else is the first generation. Other kids' parents didn't have numbers on their arms. Other kids' parents didn't talk about massacres as easily as baseball. Other kids' parents had parents. Other kids' parents loved them, but never gazed at their offspring as miracles in the flesh. Most of us weren't born in mangers, but we might as well have been. Other kids weren't considered a retroactive victory over tyranny and genocide. So, what do you do with this cosmic responsibility? You were born in the 50s, so you smoked dope and screwed around like everyone else. But your rebellion was pretty half-hearted. Because how could you rebel against these people who endured such loss? Compared to them, what did you have to complain about? How do you deal with it? 
As adults, many 2Gs took up the helping occupations and became shrinks or social workers, while others became involved with Jewish charities. And if you were a writer, you wrote. Lord knows you weren't alone, because along with your personal maturity, the Holocaust has ripened and the floodgates to exploration of this awful era opened. Why it didn't happen immediately after the war, I don't know. Understandably, people didn't want to think about it. But a delayed action fuse eventually ignites, and we are witnessing the explosion right now. The comet hits at six million miles per hour, and the waves spread. From the primary sources of the first generation to the second generation, it is swelled to include other Jews, Saul Bellows, Mr. Sandler's planet, Cynthia Ozick's The Shawl, and then non-Jews, John Hersey's The Wall, and William Styron's putative Holocaust book, Sophie's Choice, followed by Pat Conroy's Beach Music and Caribbean writer Carol Phillips's The Nature of Blood. Over the last few years, I've noticed that virtually every book I've read, an Australian novel about a millennial cult in the outback, a Brazilian novel about gangsters and gem dealers, a gay cross-dressing fantasia, a noirish portrayal of the movie business, a semi-memoir of a young black poet in an L.A. slum to greater or lesser extent involve the Holocaust. Some are good books, some are bad, but that's not the point. What's important is that the Holocaust has become a talismanic touchstone that every writer must genuflect towards. Try an experiment. Take every tenth book of fiction off the shelves of your local bookstore. A few will actually be about the Holocaust, but count how many others mention, just mention, in passing, as a metaphor, the H-word, as a kind of seal of literary seriousness. My guess is seven out of ten. The weird thing is that contravening all physical laws, the waves do not diminish. They build upon each other, getting larger rather than smaller as history itself recedes. No other event of our time has attained this emblematic significance. The only thing one can compare it to in terms of its lasting effect may be the French Revolution and subsequent ascendance of Napoleon. Fifty years after Waterloo, Raskolnikov taxed a lithograph of the emperor maybe an engraving, whatever, technology, of the emperor onto his garret wall in St. Petersburg, and the world understands why. That image represents the heights and the depths of human experience far beyond its native grounds. To the extent that the two greatest and most basic subjects for writing have always been life and death what it feels like to be alive and what it feels like to fear death. The Holocaust offers the greatest opportunity of our era. Indeed, hardly a week goes by without some other aspect of the Holocaust in the news. It's transcended the domain of history and become mythic, and no particular myth either. It's a historic Rorschach blot. People see in it what they wish. If you're depressive, you can justify despair. If you're hopeful, you can find redemption. If you're stupid, you can discern the triumph of the spirit. For a writer, it's irresistible. So irresistible that it recently led to the grotesque fraud of Benjamin Wilkomerski, whose book Fragments purported to be a memoir of his childhood in a concentration camp, but turned out to be a fiction by a man who may genuinely believe in his self-adopted identity. This is, a, this is victim envy, survivor wannabiness at its grossest. Yet the Will Kamersky case reflects something larger than one disturbed consciousness, 
people can't keep their fingers off the Holocaust. In the midst of this festive free-for-all, the two G's occupy a special place. Whatever wisdom others bring to it comes from the heart and head, but for us it's genetic. To be shabbily proprietary, we own it. Just as John Quincy Adams and Ken Griffey Jr. followed in their parents' footsteps, we go into show a business. I'd like to tell everyone from the Bellows and the Ozicks to the Styrons and the Wilkomerskys, bug off, find your own bad news. But no one can legislate artistic imperative, and perhaps no one should. Yet, if the history really is ours, then the mythos is public domain. Still, even here, we retain primacy. We have been given an obscene gift, a subject of predetermined value that no one can deny. It's our job to tell the story, to cry never forget, despite the fact that we can't remember a thing. Memory is the mantra of all the institutions that reckon with the Holocaust. But memory is an inaccurate term for anyone who wasn't there on either side of the barbed wire, Jew or German. Thinking about the Holocaust is really an act of the imagination. All we know is how little we know. Nonetheless, you've got this event, the Holocaust, always capitalized. Actually, I don't like the word. Holocaust was an uncommon common noun until the 1940s, but since then it became unique and almost immediately thereafter debased by overuse. For most of those 50 years, it referred to events in Europe, and yet, because of its potency, it's been wrongly adopted for other localities. Rwanda, Cambodia, the Balkans, the slums. Because of this, I prefer a more singular term. Shoah means essentially the same thing as Holocaust in Hebrew, but that seems wrong, too, because it comes from a different culture. So from here on, I'll say Churban, the Yiddish for disaster, which branded with the can refer to no other Churban. The first thing you learn is not to try to explain it. Asking why makes you crazy. Of course, there was a sequence of historical causes and events. World War I, the Depression, the rise of and reaction to communism, church anti-Semitism, but those are insufficient. The only reason the Germans killed the Jews was because they wanted to. Why? Because they were poor or because they were rich, because they were clannish and isolated, or because they wore top hats and attended the opera, because their tailors and seamstresses were spiritual, unworldly wraiths, or because their bankers and journalists insidiously plotted to dominate the world from within the corridors of power, because they did not believe in the common deity, or because they did believe in their tribal god, because they drank the blood of Christian children, because, like Everest, they were there. Because. The Herban is a black hole that devours light. The more illumination cast upon it, the less you see. Thus, the second thing you learn is that you can't realistically render it. The one picture I have of my grandparents is a formal family portrait taken in the mid-1920s and sent to relatives in America. 
In it, a stiff man in a wide-brimmed black hat stares uncomfortably at the camera while an attractive young woman sits with a baby on her lap. The baby, my father, is blurry. Other children and other relatives fill out the frame. I've heard stories about these people's lives. I will not turn their deaths into fiction. Still, one yearns to attribute meaning to the blurry baby, as if his motion at the moment of the shutter's opening will keep him moving twenty years later and keep him alive to bear me to describe his motion. In this direction, however, lies vile theodicy. But if you can't place yourself in the mass grave, you can't quite drag yourself out of it either. You're left with the existential dilemma described by the French thinker Alain Finkelkraut in The Imaginary Jew. He says... I inherited a suffering to which I had not been subjected, for without having to endure oppression, the identity of the victim was mine. The allotment was inescapable. For them, utter abandonment and anonymous death, and for their spokesperson, sympathy and honor, I owed to the bond of blood this intoxicating power to confuse myself with the martyrs. No trace of them remains, except perhaps my taste for poppy seed bread, scorching hot tea, and the way I hold sugar in my teeth rather than let it dissolve. In other words, how do you cope when the most important events of your life occurred before you were born? What does this do to your sense of time, of authenticity? As they were ghosts in history, you're a ghost in your own safe little suburban bedroom with cowboy lampshades. All you know is that you've received a tainted inheritance, second-hand knowledge of the worst event in history. In fact, you only see you see only the most benign effects of the herbin because by definition this is as good as it gets the manifold imaginary offspring of the 6 million actual dead do not have the second generation's opportunities perhaps their books are buried on the shelves in some library of the deceased but we don't have a card to that library the library we know by heart is our parents Maybe some don't fit this image, but I think of all of the men as short, round, bald, and tough as spikes, and the women as plump, with dyed hair, tough as spikes. I remember one, quote, gathering, that was the term for it, many years ago when then-Vice President George H. Bush was addressing about 5,000 survivors and their offspring in front of the Washington Monument. I left for political reasons, and sat in the first of several dozen waiting buses. One elderly woman had preceded me, and a few others followed us. For them, leaving the mall was a matter of practicality. The first bus filled would be the first to depart. Unfortunately, there was a problem. The first bus had been reserved for VIPs. As soon as the speech ended, and a multitude of survivors swarmed toward the buses, an officious young woman told us we had to vacate the vehicle. We, who had been so clever, would be consigned to the back of the line. The elderly woman in front of me started bitching. She was saying things like, Hitler didn't beat us and you won't, and I egged her on. We were ready to link arms and go limp. I could see the bad press take shape and 20-point type in my mind. Survivors arrested in protest at Washington Monument. Uh, eventually, authority caved in and told us we could have our damn bus. 
Uh, but the elderly woman was still muttering and cursing. How dare they? Uh, as the bus looped around the mall, I leaned forward and said, but we had fun, didn't we? <laughs> and she gave me a smile as bright as sunshine. We had never met before, but we knew each other. Later that night, I spoke to the woman in New York I'd eventually marry. Not a child of survivors, she assumed we'd be wearing sackcloth and ashes, and delicately asked how things were going. I think I shocked her when I crowed, we're having a great time. Uh, knowledge of death imparts appreciation for life. Knowledge of death also imparts an unusual kind of resignation. In the forthcoming Encyclopedia of Holocaust Literature, there are 167 entries. Three-quarters of the people rep represented are still alive, but of the 40 dead, approximately half a dozen were suicides. Larry Amsell, a psychiatrist who studies suicide, says that the uh, uh, odds, or oh, what's the other word? Probability of this percentage of suicides occurring out of a random sampling may exceed a billion to one. The natural supposition is that the reason John Amory, Tadeusz Borowski, Paul Salon, Jerzy Kaczynski, Piotr Rawitz, and perhaps Primo Levi killed themselves was because of severe depression traceable to the war. But I prefer to think otherwise. It's simply that when life becomes unbearable because of debilitating disease or scandal or whatever, then death is not fearsome. These people are so intimate with mortality that at a certain point they can shrug and say, it's time. When friends he loves die, my father calls me and says, let's go to the funeral. And we do. That's it. No fuss. No bother. His tear ducts have been cauterized. When three presidents of the Krakow Society died in the space of a year and my uncle was asked to assume the post, he said, it's a dangerous job. Life is a dangerous job. That same uncle tells about a moment during the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto. Two groups of about 50 men each stood side by side. The first deemed arbiter, workers. The second, including my uncle, mentioned. He didn't know why, but my uncle just felt that it would be better to be a worker. So he moved from one group to the other, a matter of a few feet. Just then, Commandant Amon Get arrived. He asked the German in charge what the two groups were, listened, pointed to the mention, and said, Weg mir dieser Scheiß. This means, get rid of this shit. The men were marched into an alley and shot. But Get must have noticed a Bouquet family blur and turned to my uncle and said, Weren't you with the other group? No, my uncle replied. What sort of worker are you? Um, a mechanic. Where do you work? My uncle remembered a mechanic's shop nearby and named it. Still suspicious, Get looked at my uncle and said, If you're lying to me, I'll hang you tomorrow. So my uncle thought, and here's the punchline, I'd rather be hung tomorrow than shot today. Were the novelists and poets and dramatists and cartoonists of the second generation born writers, or were we compelled to write by our proximity to extremity? I don't know. I only know that these are the stories I heard at the dinner table, thus rendering life with people who are capable of saying, I'd rather be hung tomorrow than shot today, past the salt, becomes one's most enduring subject. Throughout history, 
there have been two parallel millennia-long strands of Jewish response to catastrophe. First, there is a tone of mournful lamentation that echoes from the psalms of the Bible through medieval poetry through the somber, sober reflections of Elie Wiesel and his kin. Yet off on the side, there was always an unpleasant, hectoring voice of shrieking hysteria that came from the prophets, God-haunted maniacs on hilltops, and segued into the Hasidic messianists who tossed away their worldly possessions every time another fraud promised redemption. Opposed to wishful thinking real politic Zionists who aspired to salvation on earth, they were so doubtful of their era's ability to bring forth deliverance that they could only believe in redemption in connection with the end of days. Fifty-some years ago, the end of days arrived for one-third of the Jews on earth. Nonetheless, the literature of the Harbin, with few exceptions until now, notably Jerzy Kaczynski's The Painted Bird and the ferocious This Way for the Gas, ladies and gentlemen, by Tadia Sparovsky, a Gentile, has not been written in the voice of lunacy and apocalyptic frenzy. That voice explodes with renewed vigor in the second generation whose fury at what they have been denied, history, deity, grandparents comes out on the page. Two traits distinguish the second generation from the canonical Elie Wiesel's and Primo Levi's of the Herban syllabus. The first difference is stylistic. Wiesel and the mostly men who have written about the war emerged from a tradition of rabbinical tale-telling. Their works, compelled by the enormity of their experience, reflect that older, more traditional mode, whereas the second generation, for the most part, came of cultural age by reading Joyce, Proust, and the great shapers of modern literature. Their work, thereby, has a manifestly contemporary texture that could not exist in any other era. Also, a matter of genre. Even when the first generation claims they're writing fiction, their pages usually bestride memoir. They have no need to imagine. We have no option but to imagine. In imagining, a particular tone bleeds through in all but the mildest of second-generation writers. Though often literarily exuberant and sometimes experimental, they are viciously unredemptive, scoured of weakness as they look atrocity straight in the face with barely contained rage. Despite today's insipid fetish for healing, frequently engaged in by the social workers of the second generation, the writers heal nothing and comfort no one with their work. Healing is another word for forgetting. Healing is what movies like Life is Beautiful and Schindler's List seek. The former with gratuitous vulgarity, the latter with insidious skill, as they concoct a spurious ray of light to falsely illumine the night. Instead of closure, the writers prefer the open wound. And should that wound threaten to close, they rip out the stitches. As a young German Jewish writer provocatively titled an essay about tourism and voyeurism, See Auschwitz and die. Sorrow comes from recollection, outrage from reflection. Then, recollecting fury, it grows. The second generation's work is angrier than the first. Not for them the celebration of European Yiddishkeit. Not for them the God of their fathers. God, 
Who's that? Never met him. Or worse, if God reveals himself at moments of vastness, what Arthur A. Cohn called tremendum, what more aptly qualifies than Auschwitz 1944? If God appeared, he was wearing a brown shirt. If. There are a lot of ifs in this essay. That's because the only thing the second generation knows is the imponderable, which means that we don't know anything and distrust anyone with an answer. The wonderfully equalizing thing about the Herban is that it denies all wisdom, throws everyone it touches into the abyss of ignorance. On the other hand, the only tenderness in the writing of the second generation is reserved for those we do know, our parents. Yet even they are portrayed without sentimentality, but that's a testament to their humanity. Some may be noble, most aren't. It doesn't make a difference. If you are a minor person, shabby, greedy, or vulgar, it still doesn't mean that the Germans should slaughter your mother. No one, not a German and not a Jew who isn't a child of survivors, can begin to understand the bottomless depths of rage inside those born into the Herban. No one can understand how we can hold collectively guilty not only the octogenarian perpetrators, but the rest of the nation that saw nothing for the twelve-year reign of the thousand-year Reich and their children, and their children's children, and the yet unborn, tainted by their German blood. This is, I know, by any moral standards and by any sane logic, wrong. But because the pure flame of undying hatred is wrong, doesn't mean that it isn't true. Remember, no, isn't true. And if this reflects a deep flaw in my soul, so be it. They put it there. Remember, no particular moral stature adheres to suffering, and less so to being born of those who suffered. Jews are different since 1945. Not that the chosen people were especially saintly before. We had our share of horse thieves as well as rabbis. Generally, I prefer the company of the former. But there was a sense of passive acquiescence to circumstance that is no longer. Now we are strident. Now we rub the world's nose in our misery. Go to our museums, go see our movies, go read our books. Look at what you did. Behold. P.S. 108016 is the secret personal identification number for my bank account. 108016 is also the code to enter my computer and answering machine at work. Whenever I need a number in this age that compels them, I use 108.016. A few years ago, I presented a novel I wrote to German Chancellor Kohl and signed it 108.016. Herr Kohl looked baffled. He probably thought it was my phone number. Indeed, it would be if I could make the arrangement. After a journalist chronicled the encounter, Herr Kohl might have called me. But the only number he had was the only number I had, 108016. 
it would be disingenuous for me to claim that those six digits were the first I knew. Presumably, I could count. But the artless aniline blue of 108016 tattooed on my father's forearm was an abiding sign of the past in our present. It was his alone, and then, as much as such a thing can ever be, it became mine. And now it's yours. We can share. Our third speaker is Thane Rosenbaum, uh, who is an author, started off as a lawyer, still involved in law, uh, and noted for his fictional portrayals of the children of Holocaust survivors. He, too, a 2G, as we've just called it, a second generation. His first book, Elijah Visible, 1996, also won the Edward Lewis Welland Book Award in 1996 for the best book of Jewish-American fiction, <coughs> this is the same Wallen who wrote The Pawnbroker, which, of course, uh, then gave rise to that extraordinary film with Rod Steiger. He published Secondhand Smoke in 1999. A new work with the title The Golems of Gotham is to be published in 2002, and he's taking – that's not – reading from the work itself, only some bits of it, but that's the title of his talk today. Um, and uh, his uh, articles, reviews, and essays appear frequently in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and so on. He is also the literary editor of Tikkun and teaches human rights and law and literature at Fordham Law School, where he also directs a program in morality, humanities, and the law for the Stein Center for Law and Ethics. Uh, he wants to be known primarily as a writer of fiction, and so I give you Thane Rosenbaum. Golems of Gotham. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Froma. I, too, would like to echo the sentiments of many of my colleagues in thanking Froma and all those here associated at Princeton University for putting together this really fine and noble uh, conference. And I agree with Morris Dickstein, although I have not nearly as attended as many conferences as he has, this is f certainly one of the finest. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, I had set out to write a post-Holocaust trilogy uh, to create a kind of narrative landscape, a fictional world that would deal with the aftermath of Auschwitz. Um, sort of interesting to have Leslie Epstein and Melvin Bouquet here today, and maybe we'll talk a little about those differences. But my fictional world really does speak to everything that happens after 1945. I'm interested in my fictional life, uh, my fictional world as a novelist, in the perspective of survivors, child their children, grandchildren, who were coughed back into the world after Auschwitz, into the hole in the world left after Auschwitz, and the question that I'm always wondering in these, this trilogy, two of the books uh, have been published. The third, which I will talk a little about today, to Golems of Gotham. This is the galley. It'll be out in February. It'll be the completion of this trilogy. All three of the books, I'm always interested in what was it like to have genocide as part of your family's genes? Uh, Melvin Bouquet quite eloquently 
told us a lot about that. Um, and I've thought about that a lot in all three of these books. I know that American Jews, um, especially those from, from Long Island, uh, have been obsessed uh, with this idea of the Jewish gene. Uh, I know it comes in a very different perspective. I think for Long Island Jews, it's about drinking water. Um, but uh, for most Jews, it's the idea of having East European ancestry, right? Because we've learned from the science section of the New York Times that uh, there's something about this Jewish gene of Eastern Europe. And I oftentimes wonder that that gene really has caused far less damage than the other Polish Jewish gene that did, in fact, eliminate virtually all of Polish Jewry and two out of three Jews throughout Europe. And so that's the kind of genetic inheritance, that's the kind of genetic legacy uh, that I continue to be fascinated by. And then also this idea of how can you be expected to start over and move forward in a world after Auschwitz if that's what you, in fact, have witnessed. Uh, and looking at these themes, I've always thought that this world, this post-Holocaust world, presented very unique narrative possibilities. Now, unlike The King of the Jews, which was Leslie's really one, this phenomenal novel that Froma continues to teach, and so do I, actually. Uh, I think it's an incredible novel. I don't write about the war years, 33 to 1945. I always stay outside the fringes. In fact, my novels are always really postmodern, modernist, contemporary tales that are interested in this idea of loss and mourning and grief and spiritual scarring and theological ambivalence, a kind of different take on the idea of the uh, dysfunctional family. <clears throat> and my books always speak to this idea of reclaiming the symbols of the Holocaust. <clears throat> you heard some of that today even in Melvin's essay in all of my novels. Uh, the characters or the narrators are always invoking uh, cattle cars or smoke or ovens or gas or train tracks as a way to reclaim those symbols and metaphors and make them contemporary, real, and owned by the, the imagination of children of survivors. <clears throat> the books all unfold in a nonlinear, fractured, uh, time frame shifting, realism-bending perspective. Uh, it hasn't been spoken about here. I, I had, Leslie, had he, had he given uh, his King of the Jews talk, probably would have spoken about, and it's sort of surprising that Theodore Adorno's name has not come up yet, because in conferences like this, by now it would have come up eight times. Uh, but uh, Theodore Adorno had, had uh, German philosopher of the 20th century, had sort of decried this idea of no poetry after Auschwitz, that to make poetry or art in the aftermath of the camps was a bar barbarism. Or, uh, and for me, I've had a sort of different take on it, which is that in the aftermath of Auschwitz, <clears throat> it's not just that it's complicated to make poetry after Auschwitz, but that I don't believe that post-Holocaust novels should any longer begin with a once-upon-a-time narrative, that the books, by definition, should be fractured and broken, and that they should shift back and forth, and that they should display a kind of grotesqueness, a kind of carnival-like quality that alternates between pain and humor, the perspective being, in some ways, that the Nazis sort of altered art, and that in order to speak 
or to deploy the imagination in the spirit of speaking to the Holocaust and certainly in a post-Holocaust way to, to, to try to attempt to do that in a 19th century beginning, middle, and end is itself to me a, barbari- a, a barbarism or a vulgarity that you should in some ways respond to the irrational with more irrational, more of the grotesque, that the fiction itself should be animated with the kind of the steam engine of, of grotesqueness. And you could even hear actually the emotion of Melvin's voice that sort of speaks to that, this sort of rage and, and, and burning uh, insistence to be heard. So a trilogy which was odd that a former Wall Street lawyer who hadn't published a short story had the conceit that he not only had one book to say about the post-Holocaust world, that he in fact had three. I look back on it now and I thought, God, had no humility at all. so the first book, Elijah Visible, <clears throat> focused on this idea of mourning and paralysis that very much in the spirit of what you heard Melvin speak today, <clears throat> that the second generation was burdened by this genetic legacy, uh, overwhelmed by it, and in some ways felt the need to respond, but also felt paralyzed by it, immobilized. And that's, I think, for the psychologists among us, that's the idea of grief. That is the, the sense of paralysis and to be immobilized by mourning and grief. <clears throat> the second book, which was uh, Secondhand Smoke, uh, really focused on, I guess, for the psychologists among us, the next phase in the aftermath of grief, which is rage. Uh, and so that book really focused on this kind of need uh, to vindicate the crimes uh, committed against the parents. Uh, this idea of stalking and reclaiming and a kind of brutality of sending the message that this can never happen again. <clears throat> this new book, which I'll talk a little about today and in fact try to read small pieces from The Golems of Gotham, it's the completion of this post-Holocaust trilogy and in the spirit of what uh, Froma wanted here today, which is to say the Holocaust from here, the question then became for this completion, the third book is, so how do you end? What, what exactly did you want to say, Thane, uh, at the end? This is it. You're done. You've retired from the post-Holocaust literary business. What would the third book be about? And in some ways, does it speak to something larger, larger meaning of why we're even assembled here today at this panel, this idea of what do you say about the Holocaust from here? And so what I was interested in uh, was this idea of rescue. Um, And I'll talk about why I was interested. This This is very much a novel of longing and rescue. And also this idea of redemption. Now, I hesitate to use that word, especially in front of Melvin Bouquet, because uh, you know how he feels about even the words of healing. Uh, and I actually quite agree with Melvin in a lot of ways, but I wanted to finish the trilogy uh, with this, the possibility of repair, thinking more broadly about a complex look, not conventional repair, and I think that's what infuriates Melvin so much, not conventional idea of repair, but repair with from the perspective of Auschwitz, that what can you possibly expect, what's the quality of repair, the quality of going forward with this kind of genetic inheritance, with this kind of history as part of your Jewish genes. So the book in some ways in this sort of rescue and redemption paradigm 
tries to capture or speak to so many of the issues of our post-Holocaust moment. Uh, the novel speaks to the idea of the phrase never again as a battle cry or as a slogan and whether or not that's actually been good for Jews. We all memorize it. Uh, we all know what it means, but is it good? Uh, also, this idea of misapplied metaphors of the Holocaust, the way that people pick up on anorexia as being as if people are Holocaust victims, which I always found horrifying and demeaning that a misapplication of the use of a word anorexia and applying it to the Holocaust, or even the words Nazis or Gestapo, you know, regardless of how you felt about Giuliani before September 11th, uh, now he's so heroic, nobody would ever say anything against him. But for many years living in New York, I recall even when he was a prosecutor, people spoke of him as uh, a Nazi figure or a Gestapo figure. I've written about this, and I wanted to make sure that this, even this, the Seinfeld character, that that's not a soup Nazi. Maybe you may think that's funny, Seinfeld, but it's not funny because... Uh, uh, the Nazis would have known what to do with that soup chef. You know, it's just a disagreeable <clears throat> cook, but not necessarily a Nazi. And so um, these misapplied uh, metaphors were things that the Golems of Gotham is interested in. Even the, <clears throat> the whole notion of the Swiss bank uh, scandal is somehow makes it in uh, to the Golems of Gotham. It spares nothing. It attempts to sort of consolidate in one novel a large number of these post-Holocaust themes, all with looking, hopefully, at the possibilities for Jewish renewal and continuity, uh, thinking about the idea of Holocaust denial. <clears throat> Perhaps what's even more important, the idea of Holocaust forgetting, which is, in many ways, a large theme of this book. What the question it poses, what is the future of memory of the Holocaust? And in some other ways, it asks the question, what are the consequences of, the mem of having too harsh a memory of the Holocaust. Um, and the way it does that, to try to understand the kind of lessons that were learned and the risks and consequences of memory, that there's a kind of conflict, a tension between the imperative to remember and to be vigilant and fierce in that memory, and yet, at the same time, a deep awareness of the poison, the, the contaminant that comes from too faithful a, uh, a, 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 an, in, an impulse to remember. Now, Melvin actually gave me a actually nice lead-in for one of the conceits of this novel, because in my mind, this book attempts to do something that we've not done and not spent enough time thinking about, and I've always been surprised by it. I was so happy that Melvin mentioned it. Uh, because it is something that I've really been interested in for years, <clears throat> which is this idea that there was a, an extraordinary post-Holocaust mystery, which is that the greatest of the, the most important of the <clears throat> Holocaust survivors, who were also its greatest memoirists and artists, also killed themselves, a disproportionate number of people who were not only survivors of the Holocaust, <clears throat> but became artists in dealing with the Holocaust and ultimately committed suicide. Uh, and we'll talk, I'll try to talk a little more about that <clears throat> after I do a short reading from it. But essentially, the novel traces the story of Oliver Levin, who is a best-selling mystery writer uh, who lives on Edgar Allan Poe Street uh, in New York City. Uh, he's a very famous Gothic mystery writer. 
and his teenage daughter who lives with him. Now, the thing is about uh, Oliver in his this post-Holocaust world, this new millennial world, is that he may be famous as a mystery writer, but he's never really thought about the mysteries of his own life, which is that he's a child of Holocaust survivors, and that, in fact, his parents had killed themselves. Um, in addition to that, uh, his daughter is aware of this sort of emotional struggle that he's had. And for the first time in Oliver Levin's life, he becomes blocked. He cannot write. And in an effort to rescue her father from this debilitating writer's block, but perhaps even more poignantly, this debilitating emotional block of him being sort of cut off from this history in his family, uh, the daughter becomes, an, with the help of a magic uh, violin, becomes an amateur Kabbalist and invokes the, uh, the incantations of the Kabbalah and the formula for the making of a golem in an effort to rescue her father and her vision of how by using the sort of the recalled music of the shtetl, the klezmer violin, and by invoking the, the, the creature, the creation and the imagination of the, that creates the monster, the golem, in an effort to rescue which her father, she attempts to bring back the very grandparents that she never knew and the very grandparents who ultimately killed themselves. And so let me read to you a little from the first chapter and then we'll talk a little more. And I know we're running late and I'll read a little from the end and then we'll let James do his thing. Um, so this is from the very beginning. This is the opening scene from The Golems of Gotham. And it is, in fact, a double suicide scene. Uh, Oliver's parents kill themselves in a double suicide in a Miami Beach synagogue. <clears throat> and it goes like this. Um, a Shabbos suicide pact is not exactly what God had in mind for his day of rest. But Lothar and Rose were Holocaust survivors. God would have no say in this matter. He had become irrelevant, a lame duck divinity, a sham for a savior, a mere caricature of a God who cared. That's the price you pay for arriving late at Auschwitz, or in his case, not at all. You forfeit all future rights to an opinion. Yes, it's true the taking of a human life is a sin in the eyes of God. But this was a God who had already blinded himself. It mattered little to the Levins whether he approved of what they had done under his watch. And that's why they showed no fear in taking the liberty of poking guys, God's eyes out one last time. And what about sin? Well, nobody took that seriously anymore either. Another house specialty of Auschwitz. The Nazis had given new meaning to sin, raising the ante on atrocity, showing the world the deluxe model. Original sin seemed puny and frankly unoriginal by comparison. Zyklon B was now the ultimate forbidden fruit, faster acting, easier on the stomach. All Eve would have to do was get Adam to inhale and then say Kaddish. Survivors had the right to do whatever they wanted with their lives. They had earned at least that much. They could live with abandon, or they could simply choose to abandon. The old rules didn't apply as much as they didn't apply to anyone anymore. That's because the Third Reich had killed off all the old biblical commandments, wiped the tablets clean, 
the golden calf had been the right religion all along. Mankind was left to finish out the century without any moral landmarks and signposts, forced to thrash and stumble about in a world empty of faith, kindness, and love. And yet, when it all became too much, there were still places of worship that one could turn to, if not for spiritual salvation, then at least as the ideal location for a mercy killing. Who knows if that's what Lothar and Rose Levin were thinking on that sultry Saturday morning back in October 1980. They had silenced themselves with a riddle that no one was qualified to answer. Why survive the camps only to later commit suicide together in concert without any explanation? Paradoxically, they had turned their survival skills, the very life source that had defeated the Nazis, against themselves. The Miami Herald placed the story on the front page of the Sunday paper, Holocaust survivors succeed in shul suicide. Newspapers across the country carried the story as well. For a brief time, the mystery became a spellbinding national obsession. There was no shortage of analysts from both the media and the kind that charge by an hour that is measured in only 50 minutes. All those who happened to be in Temple Beth Am, initially as congregants and finally as mourners, naturally had something to say on the matter, America's long love affair with the eyewitness. But in Miami or elsewhere, no one had an intelligent answer or a plausible theory. The Levin double suicide would fall into that bottomless pit of similarly inscrutable phenomena. Was there a second gunman in the Kennedy assassination, or had Oswald acted alone? Did the Rosenbergs possess actual secrets that they had passed on to the Russians? Was Raoul Wallenberg still alive, rotting away in a Soviet gulag? And now there was this new imponderable. What about those two Holocaust survivors in Miami Beach? Why did they do it, you know, off themselves after Auschwitz? The Levins had become tragic figures in a world long ago inured to tragedy. Everyone was stumped, and that perhaps was how it should have been. In the absence of a suicide note, there was no way to ever know. Despair if, is, if nothing else, a private matter. The mind isn't required to share such information. And that's because the soul is the master of its own short circuitry, the system shot down, the fading pulse that monitors the brokenness of both spirit and heart. When a state of mind sinks to a point where life itself, the day-to-day -day engagements, the nightly slumber and silences becomes unbearable, who are we to second-guess or armchair analyze? There was no way to properly insert oneself inside the minds of the Levins and follow the logic of survivors who would one day choose a synagogue as the setting to turn off their own life support systems. And yet, the one who had the most immediate difficulty accepting the tragedy was Rabbi Verid. What possible lessons could be drawn from these deaths? Rabbi Verid couldn't think of any, but then again, after Auschwitz, such were the problems of those in the God business, making sense of the senseless, accounting for God in all of his absence. Perhaps that's why Jewish clergy in the post-war era so often chose to keep God out of their synagogues. Instead, they focused on more concrete matters for the secular-minded, assimilation and intermarriage, divorce, female rabbis and cantors, building funds, Israeli bonds, and in Rabbi Verid's case, tennis. 
But the situation here was even more imponderable and complex. For one thing, statistically, Holocaust survivors as a group didn't kill themselves. Indeed, there had been a remarkably low incidence of suicide among them. That's not to say that there wasn't damage. All sorts of pathology settled into the psyche of survivors after the camps were liberated. Depression and fear, nightmares and repressed guilt, but virtually never suicide. The Levin's post-survival strategy was unusual, largely because it was so final, and also because it may have hinted at no strategy at all. Their deaths echoed loudly inside a hole left in the world after Auschwitz. This was no ordinary death wish. This spousal copycat suicide. The message here was more ambiguously poignant. Surely they were trying to say something, but what? When it comes to impassioned shouts into the void, no one has the credentials to do a simultaneous translation. Now, Ariel Levin, the third generation granddaughter, resurrects her grandparents, but she overdoes it. She brings along six other ghosts, six other golems. She brings along Primo Levi and Jean-Amory and Tadeusz Borowski and Jerzy Kaczynski and Paul Salon. Uh, she doesn't bring along Bruno Bettelheim because I, I have my own problems with Bruno Bettelheim. So I, I left him out of my book. It's my prerogative. But I could have brought a seventh, but I didn't. Uh, so there are eight golems, eight ghosts, eight resurrected Kabbalah miracles uh, who, who are resurrected and inhabit, haunt the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is turned into a shtetl, even a bigger shtetl than it even is today uh, for the purposes of this book. Now, why is this so curious to me? I mean, I guess that... This idea of these survivors who became memoirists and artists who eventually killed themselves is fascinating, curious, and haven't, hasn't really been in the larger culture been focused on, I think surprisingly. I think one of the reasons perhaps is because there were bigger fish to fry. I mean, these were men uh, who had devoted their entire lives to trying to imagine the unimaginable, to think about creating a kind of literary portraits of what had happened. And the question that has been on all of our minds for so long is this very idea that uh, why did the Nazis do it? What were, what were they thinking? And in this instance, these writers never spent much time writing about their post-Holocaust despair. Instead, what they focused on exclusively is what had happened, what they witnessed, what they saw, and how it had transformed them and those people who they knew and loved. Uh, and when it was time for them to explain their despair, they did it, oddly enough, not with a note. Uh, although they exist as characters in my book uh, as ghosts, uh, there is a scene that sort of describes fictionally, in some cases completely fictionally, how these men came to kill themselves. And uh, in each of these instances, uh, the question was that they did it without leaving a note. They simply performed an act as if they were the act itself was somehow its own uh, message. Um, and so that this question that the Golems of Gotham asks is in some ways a luxury because the territory of the Holocaust had been so large and there was so much more to cover. So I know that I think my time is up. So let me just briefly say that 
this idea of this longing, this novel of longing that's about repair and resurrection is really about this creation of this golem is not for the purpose of rage and, and retribution, but for the purpose of rescue and repair in order to supply answers to this sort of bizarre post-Holocaust mystery and in order in some ways to give us a framework for moving forward in this next millennium uh, with a way also to properly hold and preserve and remember the Holocaust as we recall it as part of our collective past. Okay, thank you. I want, to, I want to remind people again about lunch downstairs uh, in the interim. We're running really late, and we can't afford to do that. Um, I'm not going to have questions after this. We can maybe do that in the wrap-up or whatever, uh, but for all of our very passionate speakers. My last speaker is, should be very well known to Princeton. He's taught here before. He's, he's uh, been here a great deal. This is James Young, professor of English and Judaic Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and currently the chair of the Department of Judaic and New Eastern Studies. He is the author of uh, three very important books, The uh, Writing and Rewriting the Holocaust in 1988, The Texture of Memory, 1993, which won the National Jewish Book Award in 1994. He was the guest curator of an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York entitled The Art of Memory, Holocaust Memorials and History, and edited the book that was the catalog and the catalog and the book that went with it, The Art of Memory, 1994. His newest book, <coughs> published in 2000 is at Memory's Edge, After Images of the Holocaust in Contemporary Art and Architecture. And in 1997, he was appointed by the Berlin Senate as a member of a special Findungskommission, uh, which amid much controversy, finally selected a winning design for Germany's National Memorial to Europe's Murdered Jews, and an affair which he is still involved in. Uh, but I would like to present to you today uh, James Young, uh, with this topic of after images of the Holocaust. So as uh, Thane put it, uh, my thing today will not be uh, the, the Berlin Denkmal, in fact, but will be really reflecting on uh, Melvin's and Thane's things, uh, and uh, Leslie's too. I like the way that um, uh, this morning, uh, was it Morris, uh, made this direct line between Leslie's work and the, uh, the new generation of writers' works. Um, I, uh, this has been a preoccupation of mine for quite some time. When I lived in Israel in the early 80s, um, I saw a, a film there uh, made by Eli Cohen and Gila Almagor, uh, and I think that the Hebrew title was Ha'etz uh, Domim Tafus, and it was loosely translated in English as uh, Under the Domim Tree, but it was a film made about uh, children survivors of the Shoah uh, landing in Israel, um, all orphans being put on a kibbutz, and finding um, how to integrate and assimilate into the life on the kibbutz, and of course the relations between um, uh, the uh, survivor kids and then the, uh, the kids who were already there who'd come over in the, um, in the 30s. And uh, there was a line that stuck with me uh, long after actually even the scenes of the movie had um, disappeared in my mind. I remember um, after uh, at one point uh, some of the non-survivor kids were um, desperate to know what had happened there, over there. And, um, and some of the survivor kids couldn't figure this out. And one shrugged his shoulder and said, you know, some people want to forget where they've been and other people want to remember where they've never been. 
And it was a very striking line that actually summarized in some ways my own, I suppose, uh, again, very vicarious relationship to these events. And this has led me to ask, then, how is a post-Holocaust generation of artists and writers supposed to remember events they never experienced directly? How are they supposed to represent events they never saw? Born after Holocaust history into a time of its memory only, this new media-savvy generation of artists and writers rarely presumes to portray those events outside the ways they have vicariously known and experienced them. And uh, I, this is actually sounding redundant now after Melvin's <coughs> and, and Thames uh, talks. Um, these were not written in concert. Um, this post-war generation, after all, cannot remember the Holocaust as it actually occurred. All they remember, all they know, is what the victims have passed down to them in their diaries, what the survivors have remembered them in their memoirs. They remember not actual events, but the countless histories, novels, poems of the Holocaust they've read, the photographs, the films, the video testimonies they've seen over the years. They remember long days and nights in the company of survivors, listening to their harrowing tales until their lives, loves, and losses seem grafted <coughs> onto their own life stories. Coming of age after, but indelibly shaped by the Holocaust, this generation of artists, writers, architects, and even composers does not attempt to represent events they never knew immediately, but instead portray their own necessarily mediated experiences of memory. It is a generation no longer willing or able to recall the Holocaust separately from the ways it has been passed down to them. Not only does this generation of artists and writers intuitively grasp their inability to know the history of the Holocaust outside the ways it's been passed down to them, but they also see history itself as a composite record of both actual events and how these events have been passed down to them. And here, in fact, I want to build a little bit on what they've said and elaborate <coughs> some of the themes I've already covered in At Memory's Edge to suggest that, in fact, I believe this generation of uh, writers and artists in particular has begun to um, force historians to rethink uh, what they're doing. And I would say that uh, Shoal Friedlander, a good friend of mine, has um, heard this call for passing history down both as it happened and as it gets passed down again, you know, now reevaluating his own role uh, as an historian and, and the role of his voice. This doesn't mean that the vicarious memory of the second generation would take the place of history itself or that they or their works would in any way usurp the authority of historians in their research. Indeed, as this second or third generation are often the first to point out, they inevitably rely on hard historical research for their knowledge of what happened and how and why. But in addition to the facts of Holocaust history, they recognize the further facts surrounding this history's transmission to them, that its history is being passed down to them in particular times and places. These are not mutually competing or exclusive claims or competing sets of facts, but are both part of history's reality. For these writers seem to recognize in their works that the facts of history never stand on their own, but are always supported by the reasons for recalling such facts in the first place. For American artists and writers like Art Spiegelman, Alan Rothenberg, Melissa Gold, uh, David Leventhal, and Shimon Ati, uh, the composer Steve Reich and his um, composition, Different Trains, or a, film, a filmmaker like um, Abra Vett and his Memory Trilogy, or for writers like Melvin and Thane and Francine Prose and Deborah Eisenberg and Ann Michaels, to name only a few. Um, uh, their subject is not the Shoah so much as how they came to know it and how it has shaped their inner lives and imaginations. Theirs is an unabashed terrain of memory, not of history, but no less worthy of exploration. 
as becomes especially clear, say, to the author, in this case, uh, Art Spiegelman, uh, the author of Mouse, A Survivor's Tale, um, it is not the Holocaust that constitutes the subject of his work so much as the survivor's tale itself and the artist's son's recovery of it. In Spiegelman's own words, Mouse is not what happened in the past, but rather what the son understands of the father's story. It is not a biographical history of my relationship with my father, a survivor of the Nazi death camps cast with cartoon animals. As his father recalled what happened to him at the hands of the Nazis, his son Art recalls what happened to him at the hands of his father and his father's stories. As his father told his experiences to Art, in all their painful immediacy, Art tells his experiences of the storytelling sessions themselves, in all their somewhat less painful immediacy. That Spiegelman has chosen to represent the survivor's tale as passed down to him in what he calls the comics, or co-mixture of image and narrative, is neither surprising nor controversial. After all, as comics artist and founder of Raw Magazine, Spiegelman has only turned to what has always been his working artistic medium. That the comics would serve such a story so well, however, is worth exploring here. On the one hand, Spiegelman seems to have realized that in order to remain true to both his father's story and his own experience of it, he would have to remain true to his medium. But in addition, he has also cultivated the unique capacity in the co-mixture of image and narrative for telling the double-stranded tale of his father's story and his own recording of it. In fact, the story is not a single story at all, but two stories told simultaneously, the father's story and Spiegelman's Spiegelman's imaginative record of it. It is double-stranded and includes the competing stories of what his father says and what Artie hears, what happened during the Holocaust and what happens now in Artie's mind. As a process, it makes visible the space between what gets told and what gets heard, what gets heard and what gets seen. The father says one thing as we see him doing something else. Artie promises not to betray certain details, only to show us the promise and the betrayal together. Indeed, it may be Artie's unreliability as a son that makes his narrative so reliable. Throughout Mouse, Spiegelman thus confronts his father with the record of his telling, incorporating his father's responses to Art's record of it into later stages of Mouse. It thus feeds on itself as a narrative, recalling its own production, even the choices the artist makes along the way. Would he draw his French wife who converted to Judaism as a frog or as an honorary mouse? The story now includes not just what happened, but how what happened is made sense of by father and son in the telling. At the same time, it highlights both the inseparability of his father's story from its effect on art, Artie, and the story's own necessarily contingent coming into being, all of which might be lost to either images or narrative alone, or even to reception that did not remark its own unfolding. Now, some of the other artists who do these things I've, I've discussed in App Memory's Edge, you know, David Leventhal with his, um, his uh, toys, and um, uh, Shimon Ati uh, with his projections, but I won't, um, I won't actually get into uh, them quite so much now, but talk about this preoccupation with, it, with the Holocaust as it gets passed down to them. Um, on the one hand, uh, much of this work recognizes the survivors need to testify to their experiences and even in some ways to put the Holocaust behind them. But by calling attention to their own necessarily vicarious relationship to events, this next generation ensures that their so-called post-memory of it, in Mariana Hirsch's words, remains an unfinished ephemeral process, not a means toward definitive answers to impossible questions. 
Moreover, what further distinguishes these artists from many in their parents' generation is the categorical rejection of art's traditional redemptory function, which you've heard in Melvin's words, in the face of catastrophe. For these artists, the notion that such suffering might be redeemed by its aesthetic reflection or that the terrible void left behind by the murder of Europe's Jews might be compensated by the next generation's literary reflections is simply intolerable on both ethical and historical grounds. At the ethical level, this generation believes that squeezing beauty or pleasure from such events afterwards is not so much a benign reflection of the crime as it is an extension of it. At the historical level, these artists and writers also seem to find that the aesthetic, religious, and political linking of destruction and redemption may actually have justified such terror in the killer's minds originally. see, I'm going to skip a lot of material here. Why, in fact, should we assume there are positive lessons to be learned from the Holocaust? As, say, as Jonathan Rosen is asked in an article that cuts excruciatingly close to the bone of Art Spiegelman's own ambivalence. I quote him, what if some history does not have anything to teach us? What if radical, studying radical evil does not make us better? What if walking through the haunted halls of the Holocaust Museum, looking at evidence of the destruction of European Jewry, visitors do not emerge with a greater belief that all men are created equal, but with the belief that man is by nature evil instead, unquote. As we see in the case of uh, Vladik's own uh, racist attitudes toward African Americans, as uh, Arts portrayed them in Mouse, the Holocaust may have even made him somewhat worse. And if the Holocaust does not enlighten its victims, how will its story enlighten the next generation? It is an irony with a very clear judgment built into it. The Holocaust was an irredeemably terrible experience then, had a terrible effect on many survivors' lives, and endows its victims with no great moral authority now. Categories like good and evil remain, but they are now stripped of their idealized certainty. Neither art nor narrative redeems the Holocaust with meaning, didactic, moral, or otherwise. In fact, to the extent that remembering events seems to find any meaning in them, such memory also betrays events by blinding us with our own need for redemptory closure. And uh, actually the sounds uh, exactly redundant is almost uh, exactly the words that Melvin was using uh, earlier. Hence, fictional works like Melvin Bouquet's Stories of an Imaginary Childhood, After, While the Messiah Tarries, uh, Signs and Wonders, Strange Fire, um, uh, dig painfully into that nether space between his generation and his parents' generation, into having not been there, and how neither having been there nor having missed it will ever confer grace or moral, moral privilege on any of us. Hence, Francine Prose in her Guided Tours of Hell and Annette Michaels in her Fugitive Pieces take us on language-saturated archaeological digs into this past, excavations of both minds and landscapes scarred by the experiences of others. Hence, Dane Rosenbaum's Elijah Visible, Secondhand Smoke, and his brand-new Golems of Gotham betray an, imagine, an imagination at war with itself over the necessity and absolute incapacity in his, his protagonist to overcome a past they never knew directly but which has nevertheless shaped the, the, his protagonist's every thought, move, and word. No doubt some may see such work as supremely evasive, even self-indulgent by a generation more absorbed in their own vicarious experiences of memory than by the survivor's actual experiences of real events. 
Others will say that if the second or third generation want to make art out of the Holocaust, then let it be about the events and not about themselves. The problem for much of these artists' generation, of course, is that they are, are unable to remember the Holocaust outside of the ways it has been passed down to them, outside of the ways it has been made meaningful to them 50 years after the fact. As the survivors have testified to their experiences, their children and children's children will now testify to their experiences. And what are their experiences of the Holocaust? Photographs, film, histories, novels, poems, plays, survivors' testimony, it is necessarily mediated experience, the afterlife of memory represented in histories after images, the impressions retained in the mind's eye of a vivid sensation long after the original external cause has been removed. Why represent all that? Because for those in Spiegelman's, Bouquet's, Prose's, Michael's, and Rosenbaum's generation, to leave out the truth of how they came to know the Holocaust would be to ignore half of what actually happened. We would know what happened to Spiegelman's father, but miss what happened to the artist's son. But isn't the important story what happened to their parents in Auschwitz? Yes, but without exploring why it's important and how it has shaped who they are, we leave out part of the story itself. Is it self-indulgent or self-aggrandizing to make the listener's story part of the teller's story? This generation doubts that it can be done otherwise. They can no more neglect the circumstances surrounding a story's telling than they can ignore the circumstances surrounding the actual events unfolding. Neither the events nor the memory of them take place in a void. In the end, these artists ask us to consider which is the more truthful account, that narrative or art which ignores its own coming into being or that paints this fact, too, into its canvas of history. In fact, I believe these writers might lead us to ask, can the historian ever really know the history of an era without knowing its art and literature? And I have to say, in Shaul Friedlander's new volumes, um, uh, Nazi Germany and the Jews, he tells the history of the art and literature of the time, and music as well. In other words, he makes this part of the history of things as they unfolded. How did the people in the moment understand and kind of assimilate to culture those events around them as they unfolded. This, too, is part of history. That is, can any historian truly represent events of a bygone era without understanding how the artists and writers of that time actually grasped and then responded to events unfolding around them? I would answer no. By extension, I would like to ask how well historians can represent the past without knowing how the next generation has responded to it in their art and literature. That is, without knowing how such history is being mediated for the next generation and why it is so important to know in the first place. For these phenomena, too, are part of the history that is now being imagined after the fact. In her fascinating essay on the early 19th century German historian archivist uh, Hans von, von Aufsess, Susan Crane has asked, how does history become personal? Only when it is survived or only when private lives become private public knowledge? What constitutes an experience of history, being there, being told about it, or telling it, being taught it, or teaching it, reading about it, or writing it? How does history become personal when an individual, or does history become personal when an individual cares about it? Unquote. After Susan Crane, but a slightly different context, I would like to ask here, when is the personal historical? And also, when is the, <coughs> uh, when is the historical personal? That is, what happens to historical narrative when the writer of history, like Shul Friedlander, is one whose very life was shaped by the events whose history he tells? Or what might an historian's narrative look like after it was received by someone like me, born after the war, but also indelibly shaped by the survivor's stories? 
What historians who were not there remember is what they've read, what they've researched, what they found in archives. But for those who were there, they remember both what they read and what they did, both what happened and how others have described it. Many historians, however, fear they cannot know or tell what happened precisely because they were there. The unreliability of personal memory undermines their confidence in the ability to tell an historically verifiable past. Most appreciate too well that being part of this past makes their personal experiences subject to, to the Nazis' own cunning manipulation of events, the ways in which they choreographed events in order to blind victims to the realities in which they were caught. But here it is precisely this blinded account that we might want to hear now, so that we can know how victims understood, even if this means having misunderstood, events around them. For this, too, is part of history, part of the past, which is too often occluded by the historian's own good judgment and professionalism. As historians like Shoal Friedlander come increasingly to draw in the self-interested lines of their particular tellings, the receiver of history might now paint in the texture of its reception. Under what circumstances was it received? Who told it? When? And in what social and political context? What did the teller read that morning in the newspapers? And what preoccupied the listener that day? At what point did the listener's attention lapse as he or she was reminded of his or her own recent past or that of others nearby? How did the listener's response to a particular story shape the teller's story as it unfolded? Where does the survivor's life story end and mine begin? How are we marked by the histories we received, and how does that marking become part of the historical text? In this alternative history, we might restore both the telling and reception of historical lives to the historical record. Such work aims to reinvest the narrated past with the animacy of its telling, and this we find in Spiegelman's uh, uh, Mouse, as well as um, you know, the works uh, we've seen up here. The consequences of its reception for both teller and listener in this way, we might make the listeners' and readers' responses to history a part of that history's record. Such a history would include the author's journey to the past, the distance between the lives of tellers and listeners, the points of engagement. It might also include the inaudibles of history, the momentary reflexes and associative moments in both the teller and listener, the pauses between memories as they come, the interruptions in telling that come with the impinging realities of daily life. By restoring to the record the times and places, the social and political circumstances surrounding a given story's telling, we might enlarge the text of history with its own coming into being. Indeed, I would like to suggest here that these memory artists, the memory artists of this generation, may even lead the next generation of historians to a more refined, if complex, kind of history telling, one that takes into account both events and how they get passed down. In turn, I would like to see their works for scholars like us, like me, to reflect on our own academic commodifications of, the, of Holocaust history, the ways the next generation simultaneously feeds on the past and disposes of it in their work. While academic critics have been quick to speculate on the motives of filmmakers, novelists, and artists, we have remained curiously blind to our own commodification of memory and history, to the ways an entire academic industry has grown up around events of the Holocaust. It is time to step back and take an accounting. Where does all this history and its telling lead? To what kinds of knowledge? To what ends? For this is, I believe, the primary challenge to Holocaust heart and historiography in what we've now called this anti-redemptory age. It is history telling and memory that not only mark their own coming into being, but also point to the places, both real and imagined, they inevitably take us. Thank you. I'm
I want to thank I want to thank all our panelists. I'm incredibly sorry that we're not going to have time to have questions. Could be very heated. Uh, it wouldn't be very heated time. There are other people going to come here before two, expecting to start at two. So we have no leeway. Uh, you will meet James Young again this afternoon because he's going to be the moderator for the panel uh, with Art Spiegelman, who will also be here, James, uh, Jules Pfeiffer, and Will Eisner on comics. Thank you. Yes. Uh